And I just, like I said, I just love everything about it. I mean, I, I love the lights and the trees and, uh, you know, I, I love giving presents. I love receiving presents. I mean, it's just everything about Christmas is really um, an enjoyable experience, uh, I, I would say, except for there's one thing that I just have never gotten on board with, and that's the, the movies. I just, you know, I like good acting and good dialogue. So Hallow, Hallmark movies, they're just sort of, like, there's nothing there. And so, um, except for, uh, there is one that I really, really enjoy. Um, it is true to, to the original novel, and that is A Muppet Christmas Carol, right? I just, I love, I love that movie. And I love that version, and I don't know why, right? I mean, because those Muppets, they've got it, right? They've got the acting down. They, they know how to do it. Um, and and I, th- I don't think I've ever met anybody who, in some form or fashion, doesn't love that story. Maybe you don't like the movies. Maybe you don't like the Muppet one, the story itself. But, so everybody, we, we love the story of A Christmas Carol because, um, to, to some extent, not, not explicitly, but like we see the gospel sort of shine forth, right? Scrooge is this old and grumpy and, you know, greedy man and... His heart has changed. He becomes a different person, right? He becomes a new person. And we see a family in the story that kind of has nothing, and yet they are still generous, and they are loving, and they are kind, and they give to those around them. We're able to relate to the characters. We see it, and we see ourselves in the movie or in the book, and we, we, we identify with the people. But I want to ask you this morning, how many of you willingly identify with Scrooge? Generally speaking, we watch the movie and we're like, oh, I see myself, you know, in Tiny Tim and in the family who is generous. How many times when you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah do you see yourself in Lot's wife and not in Lot, right? We, we like to read the story and we're like, yeah, I'm like Lot, right? I'm, the, I'm, I'm trusting the Lord and I'm moving forward. But oftentimes we are Lot's wife, right? We're looking back at what we've left behind and, and our faith in God sometimes wavers and it's not as strong as we would wish it to be and we read the story of David and Goliath and we're like yeah that's me with the slingshot and oftentimes we are not that right we're not the one who is slaying giants but we're scared of them and we run away and we're actually more like Saul a lot of the times than we are like David and so this morning I think what we're going to see in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is there's a lot of things going on right It's it's a bunch of verses and there's all this stuff and What the Lord led me to as I was studying this week was that we tend to read things like this and we say, oh, yeah, of course, those other people are the ones who are responsible, you know, for the oppression, right, and for the injustice. And look look here and look at this person and this person's doing that. And we read about this idea that the person who loves money is not satisfied with it. We say, yeah, of course. We see all these people who are super wealthy and look how unsatisfied they are. And we rarely let these things sort of land on our own hearts. Because it's easier to look outside. It's easier to look to other people and say, yeah, look how unhappy they are. Or look how unjust they are. And we forget that the Bible is speaking to us first and foremost, primarily. To our own hearts. And I'm just as guilty as anybody. Lewis put it this way, right? He says, um, when someone else wrongs us, we're, we're quick to find fault. 
But when somebody points out the wrong in us, we have a list as long as our arm as to why we did that, right? I was impatient, but you don't understand why. Let me tell you the hundred reasons why I lost my cool with you today. Because we're quick to defend ourselves, and we're quick to overlook our own shortcomings, and we're fast to look at the faults of other people. I don't think Ecclesiastes will let us do that, right? I don't think that what Solomon is telling us is, is encouraging us to look outside of ourselves for the wrongdoing that's going on around us, but rather he wants us to look inside. This doesn't mean that all the other guilty people all around us are not guilty or that God will pardon the guilty, but rather that we should maybe be trying to pull that plank out of our own eye, right, before we start trying to get the speck out of everyone else's. And that's where I think the focus is this morning, and that's what I want us to see um, as we look at Ecclesiastes. So let's read 8 and 9 together. We'll take it in kind of sections here. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness... Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way that a king committed, uh, a king is committed to cultivated fields. Now when we hear these verses, once again, I think, when I read them the first time this week, my, my initial gut reaction response was, oh yeah, of course. There's so much oppression and there's so much injustice in our land. And whose fault is that? It's the judges, it's our mayor, it's the governor, it's this. And I just immediately started thinking about all of the politicians that I disagree with. I'm like, ah, it's their fault and it's their fault and it's this guy. And it just, that's immediately like where my mind went. Now there's too many there's too many injustices and there's too many oppressions to list them all, right? So why don't we just grab onto one, we'll use it as our example, and we'll use this example to help us see how not only are others guilty of these things, but we are at least to some degree guilty of not trying to solve these things. The one I thought of, um, and, and, and I think of this because it's, it's at the forefront of my mind quite regularly, and because in the next month or so we're going to have a special service here, right, about the sanctity of life, right, the evil and the oppression that is abortion. It's a horrific thing, and every time we hear the statistics and we hear the numbers of the babies who are being murdered year after year, we wonder, how could this happen? We ask God, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you not intervening? Why are you not doing something about it? But Solomon tells us here, right, don't, don't be amazed at these things because they're happening, and they're happening all around us. And so we can ask these questions, but really, and I would say this too, we ask God where is his intervention, but I mean, what has happened in the last year? On a political level, there was a miracle that happened this last year in the world of abortion, was there not? A year ago, how many of you really thought that Roe v. Wade would be overturned? You think, oh, there's this case going before the Supreme Court. Okay, fine. Like, maybe, we're in a, maybe we've taken a step in the right direction, and maybe it will just shed a little bit of light on this issue. But there is absolutely no way that our Supreme Court would ever overrule this. this is, everybody, you know, all the, all, even conservative political people were just like, 
you know, this is sort of a lost cause. It's not happening. There's no way. And then last year, I remember, it was like almost a year ago that this case goes before them, right? And then I hear all these reports like, hey, the lawyers for the pro-life, they actually sort of did a really good job. And the lawyers for the pro-abortion side did a really bad job. Maybe. Like, maybe there's hope. Maybe, maybe God is doing something. Maybe God is intervening on this, right? And how many of you, like me, were shocked when the Supreme Court did something that nobody expected them to do? Right? They overturned something and they brought these, this, this back to the states. And, and it's a cause for rejoice, right? Because there are many states who just immediately were ready. Like they had a law ready. They signed it immediately. No more abortion in our state. But you see, we live where we live, right? We live in a state where it's still legal. I mean, the, the only step that we could take further would be infanticide, right? We live in a state where you can still perform an abortion up to the due date. This is a great injustice. This is not just an oppression on these young babies, but this is murder for them. And so once again, the temptation is, well, it's it's our governor's fault. Why didn't he sign up? And and I'm not saying that that is not true. I'm not saying that that there is not responsibility to go around. But my question to you this morning is, what are we doing? What are you doing to fix injustice and oppression should continue to vote in a way that would hopefully bring somebody into the governor's office who may one day sign a bill in our state that would that would outlaw this but in the meantime what can we be doing can you imagine what it would be like if First Baptist, like you guys gather together as a church and you say, you know what? We're going to do everything within our power to go and find and adopt one, at least one baby in the next five years. We're going to, and so that means that somebody in this church, some family in this church has to be willing to be those adoptive parents, right? And maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not able to do that. Maybe you're able to give money to this extremely expensive process, right? Maybe you're able to give your time if, the, if and when a baby comes into the family of this church and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there once a month or once a week to babysit for you because this is going to be tough. And so what I, the point of this all is to say when we read about injustice and oppression, we shouldn't look outside of ourselves to find a solution. But what are we doing as individual Christians to try and solve this, right? Now, you or I, or even this church, or even this town, we can't, we're not going to fix this issue. We're not going to fix any issue of oppression or injustice on our own. But that doesn't mean that as individuals, we can't put one little drop in the bucket. Because our one drop in the bucket is one more drop than was there before, right? We should be doing whatever we can when we read things like this. And so once again, the second thing I think to notice is that we do not, it is not our job to fix these things, but it is our job to put forth an effort. Solomon tells us, right, that the government officials, they're being watched by somebody and then they're being watched by somebody, right? The mayor of Durango is being watched by the governor, which is being watched by the president, which is being watched by the almighty God of the universe. This is not outside of his control. Nothing that is going on, no injustice, no oppression is outside of God's vision or scope or control. It's not that he is so busy, he's like, oh, I forgot. 
these things are happening. I didn't see that going on. Dang, I would have done something if only I had known. But God knows what is happening all around us. He sees these things. And the people, and not just the people in political power, but each one of us, one day will answer for our own shortcomings in this, right? Down to the individual, when God looks at us and says, hey, you know, you, you, never, you never did anything. You, you stood up and spoke a lot against abortion, and you, you had these ideas, but what did you actually do? What did you try to do in your local community to at least bring the, the smallest measure of relief for this oppression or for this injustice? So I think we should continue to pray that God would bring a, an end to this horror. I think we should continue to vote. And I think that we should find a way to help on the ground, right? What can you practically do as a Christian in Bayfield, Colorado to help bring down this injustice? And I don't say this because I want everyone to feel guilty and like, oh no, I'm, I'm going to feel bad for the rest of the day. The point is, is that Solomon is speaking about us, about individuals. He is not pointing to the government as a whole and saying it's the government's fault. What are we doing as individuals? The third thing is to notice is what, what should our prayers be for? So in these two verses, Solomon, he brings up these previous statements. See, these two verses at face value almost feel weird. They don't really even seem like they fit, right? He's just all of a sudden he brings up impression and, oppression and injustice. And what is he talking about and how does this fit with this overall message of the book of Ecclesiastes, Right? That we, we are going to die one day and that we can't avoid that. And what are we going to do and how are we going to live? And he gives us this encouragement, right, to, to find joy in our toil and to enjoy our families and to be together and to, to live this life that's, that's far more simple than maybe we've created for ourselves. And he tells us, right, in verse 9, but this is a gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. What does that provide? Provides work to go in and right to, to, to cultivate the fields means that people are out there planting and, and harvesting and it brings food. Right? These are the two things that Solomon has told us over and over again. He, he tells us again at the end of this chapter, what is it to live a life that is serving to God? Is it chasing money? Is it chasing power? Is it chasing respect? He tells us over and over again, that is not going to work. It's not going to fulfill you. What is the thing that we should be doing? Find joy in our toil. A cultivated field brings toil. We find joy in that and we have food to eat. And this is what is good. This is our lot in life. This is what God has created us for. A simple life of enjoying your toil, enjoying your family. Worshiping God. See, when we try to complicate it beyond these very simple things... This is when our life gets messy, and this is when our life gets crazy, and this is when life gets stressful. <coughs> I think we all know what the number one stress for a married couple is money, right? It's the number one thing in our culture as a whole. Now, it may not be true for you, but the number one thing as a whole in this culture that, that marriages stress out about or that married couples fight about is money, And so if we lived far more simple lives, if our lives required less money to live and to continue on, 
how much less stress would we have? I know when I was growing up, um, you know, my parents both worked full time. Um, my parents provided a pretty, you know, big size, big house. We live in the suburbs of Houston. Um, I had my own room my whole childhood. We lived on several acres, and my parents worked like really hard and lots of extra hours to make this possible for us. And I remember as a kid thinking, like, I had friends at school, and it's like, you know, I go over to their house, and they're, you know, they, I, I would know, like, oh. They live like in the trailer park, you know, right next to the school, or they live in this apartment complex, and they're sharing a room with their, all three of their siblings, all four of them are in one room together, and I just always thought as a kid, like, man, my life must be, my life must be better than theirs. Like, I have all of these things. I have all of this room. My parents have given me all of this stuff, so by definition, I have a better life than this person. And nobody really ever challenged me on that as a kid. I didn't really go around talking about it, but it's just like, that's what I thought, you know, and, and so nobody really ever taught me anything different as a kid. And so it kind of grew up, and, and as, in, as I entered into my adult life, it sort of just stuck with me. Oh, the way to be happy is to provide these things. Like, I need to get this, you know, I need to make sure that all of my kids have their own room, and I need to have enough room for all of them to spread out. And the Lord has a sense of humor about these kinds of things. <laughs> For the last year, my wife and I and three kids have been living in 800 square feet in a single wide mobile home from the 1970s with all kinds of weirdness going on, right? <laughs> my three kids are in one room. My wife and I are in another. We have a bathroom that you can't even pass each other in. We have hallways that you can't even pass each other in. This morning, right, I'm coming down. I'm going from the kitchen to to back to the bedroom and my wife is coming at me and I'm like, well, I got to back up. There's no way. There's, we can't do it, right? And, and I just had this idea like that, that can't be a fun or happy life. And yet, you see, the, the thing about a mobile home from the 1970s is it doesn't cost very much money to buy it. <laughs> you see, we don't have a mortgage anymore. We don't owe anybody anything. We live out there and if we, I mean, we could, we could probably live on like $400 a month if we really had to. And what does that do? That, what that does is that enables me, and I've never been in this position in my life where, you know, God has provided me with a great job that I love. I love working at the hospital, and I love being a chaplain. But if there was ever a day when the chaplain program said to me, hey, you can't preach the gospel anymore, I say, okay, I quit. I'm done. I mean, I've never been in a place where if, if, if a boss or somebody came to me and said, hey, I want you to do this thing that I, that, and, and I know in my heart, that's not right. That's not what I should be doing. I need to be doing this other thing. But because I have to provide for my family and because I have to pay my mortgage, I can't quit this job. I want to. I should. I know that I should. But I can't because I've got to keep food on the table. I've been there. And I'm sure we've all been there, right? You've all, and you think, well, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Like, I've, I've got to keep going. And I'll tell you, I've been there. And it's really sad because I've been there as a minister in a church where I knew I should have quit. And I knew that I should have walked away because they told me to do something that I should never have done. And yet I said, but I got to feed my wife and kids. I got, it's one of the great regrets of my life. And I'm going to, the church that I worked at in Texas before I came here, you see, we, we had, a, we had a family within that church, and the dad of that church 
I mean, the, the, the dad of that family, he's a stepfather to the kids, and he, um, he was sexually abusing his stepdaughter. And he came out to the church, and he, and he admitted it, and he said, I know that I'm wrong, I repent of my sin. And he went to the police, and he told them, he was arrested, and he was put in jail, right? And his wife and the kids, they're in the church, and the church is just gathering around them, ministering to them, as a church should. And I remember one time in staff meeting, I brought up, and I said, hey, who's going who's gonna to go see him in prison? Like, I want to go see him, because even though he did something horrific and sinful, he is a child of God, and he repented, and God loves him, and God forgives him, and we should forgive him, and I want to go, and I want to see this man, and I want to try to help him. And my pastor told me, if you go to that prison and you talk to him, you are fired. And I should have. I should have got up at that moment and said, then I quit. I'm done. Because that's, that, like, that's not the God that we serve, right? God is, is willing to forgive anybody and everybody of any sin. And God has given me a place now Right? Where my life has become simple to the point where like, I, am, I am able to. Right? And, and so I, I say all of this because it, it, at some point in my life I got this wrong idea that the more I can provide for my family, the more happy they will be. And Solomon is telling us something very, very different here. He's telling us actually that an entire kingdom focused on just making sure there's food on the ground, growing out of the ground. This is what a good king should be doing. Let's look at the, the next big idea, right? So the rest of this chapter, he kind of is, is then taking on another big thing. And so we're going to cover it all. Um, but it can be summed up in, in, in really in the first half of verse 10, right? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. We hear that verse and we also give a hearty amen because we don't think it applies to us. We think it applies to the rich and the famous and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and all these people with millions or billions of dollars. And we say, those guys clearly love money. Look how much of it they have. How can you love money if you don't have any, right? I and yet, Solomon is speaking to us, right? He's not speaking to just the rich and the famous and the super wealthy Now, it is helpful, I think, for us to realize, and we see people around us, right? People whom we don't know, but people who, who are obscenely wealthy, who have lots of money. And what happens over and over and over again? We see this, especially within Hollywood. Drug overdoses, right? Alcoholics, suicide, and we say, ah. And it's good proof to us that what Solomon is telling us is true. Because a lot of these people we see end up with that kind of a fate, have more money than we could ever imagine. They have enough money to buy pretty much anything they want, and yet it's clear that they are unhappy. And it's helpful, right? It's helpful to see that and say, like, okay, maybe Solomon knows a little bit about what he's talking about, right? Those people have it all. But this, this can't apply to me because I don't have enough money to just buy whatever I want. And what Solomon is saying is not, he, he doesn't give parameters on your salary. He just says anybody who loves money, whether you have $100 or a $1 million, right? If you love that money, if you're setting it up as an idol and as a god in your life, you will not be satisfied. I think it's also really important that we don't lie to ourselves about things, right? 
We don't, uh, a lot of the times we think of it, we think, oh, the rich, like that's not me. That's not us. It's like 40% of the world doesn't have clean drinking water. 50% of the world lives on less than $5 a day. $5 a day, right? Simple math, 150 bucks a month. If you only had $150 a month, how much of your stuff would you have to give up? Like all of it, right? I mean, pretty much everything we own. Like, I, you, we can't afford to maintain the lifestyle that we have, not even close, on $150 a month. So when we think about ourselves in the context of the world, the fact that you eat three meals a day and that when you woke up this morning you had more than one set of clothes to choose from to come to church and that you woke up in a bed with heat like we in comparison to the world like we we are very very wealthy people even if we don't think of ourselves that way when we compare ourselves to kind of the people around us in our society um, generally speaking we are right we have lots and lots and lots of abundance and we have lots of excess but even if we weren't the statement is universal right even if we weren't, Solomon is speaking to everyone, no matter how much you have or how much you don't have. When Rockefeller was the richest man in the world, you know, whenever that was, I don't know my history all that well, sometime in the last hundred years, right? Um, they, they asked him, hey, what was, you, what was the, your, your favorite um, million dollars that you had made? You guys ever heard this before? What did he say? My next one. Right? That's the attitude of our world and our society. We have money and we're not satisfied with it. I Think back to the first job you ever have. It, it, some of us, that might be a little harder. Um, for me, it was only about 20 years ago. And I just remember like when I was uh, starting off in college and all of my friends and roommates and they're all having to work minimum wage at like McDonald's or Walmart or whatever. And I think it was maybe like four or five bucks an hour. And I landed a youth ministry job at a church, and they were paying me $100 a week. And I was like, ha! I've, man, I have arrived. $100 a week? Are you kidding me? Like, what, what am I going to do with all of this money? Like, that was what I thought, right? And when, when, they, when they offered me this, this position, and I'm thinking, whoa, I've never seen that much money. How is it? I mean, I had a credit card with a $200 limit, and that was for six months. My parents were, like, trying to teach me how to use a credit card. And, like, that was my six-month limit was $200. And now I'm making $100 a week. And I just can remember thinking, wow, this is insane. And then I went to seminary. And I, I, I landed another part-time job, and that one was $1,000 a month and a free place to live. And I'm thinking, man, like, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. This is going to solve all of my problems. And it just progressed, right? I got out of seminary, and I got into my fir the first church that I worked at full-time, $30,000 a year. What do you even do with $30,000 a year? Like, I don't understand. I don't know what I could possibly ever do. And it just moved up from there and moved up from there. And just, you know, as you get older, like, this happens, right? You gain more experience. And before my wife and I moved here, what Solomon is saying is ringing true in the situation because we were living in East Texas and nobody wants to live in East Texas, right? If you've ever been there, you know, nobody wants to be there. And so we bought a house. It's like 1,800 square feet. It's like $60,000. And I mean, it's like dirt cheap. Was working as a family pastor, I think I was making like fifty or $60,000 a year. We had a $500 mortgage and we only had one kid. It's like we had more money than we could, knew what to do with and that we would spend the way that kind of we lived our lifestyle. We just think... We, we don't have to worry about money. Everything is going to be great. And then God called us to Colorado to come plant a church. Which is kind of like starting your own business, except for I didn't have 
any money to do that, right? And not only did I go from a $500 a month mortgage in Texas to $1,500 a month to pay in rent, but my salary was half what it was in Texas. And you know what? The six years that I pastored the church here in Bayfield have been the most fulfilling, the most happy years of my life because money doesn't mean anything. It doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring happiness. Serving God in, which, in what he has called you to do, that's what brings us joy. That's what brings about our happiness. And Solomon is trying to tell us over and over and over again. And we have a hard time hearing it. Have you ever read the book of Hebrews and wondered, why is this guy harping on this Christ is the priest? You know, the, the, the law is gone and over and over. And we read it and we, you're like, dude, we got it, right? We don't, I don't need to hear this a hundred times because I understand but when you think about who the book of Hebrews was written to, it was the Jewish people, right? They have lived for thousands of years under the law and under the priestly thing. And the writer of Hebrews knows that. And he probably didn't say it enough for the Jews to read that and be like, oh, now I get it. No more law. Christ is the new priest. Now I understand. This is what is happening with us, right? We have been ingrained in our brains for, for our entire life that the more money you have, the happier you will be. The bigger house you have, the happier you will be. The newer your car, the newer your phone, the fancier all of your stuff, the happier you will be. And Solomon is just trying to break through that and say that will not satisfy you. He's not telling us that money is bad. He's not telling us that wealth, that any of these things are in and of themselves evil. But rather, if we love it. One of, the, one of the wealthiest people I know is also the most generous person I know. That dude is happy and fulfilled because anytime somebody is in need, he's, he has the freedom to like 10 grand. Whoop. He doesn't even care. Writes the check, throws it. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. Because he understands what his wealth is for. It's not for him. It's not to boost his ego. It's so that he can bless other people. And that's true for all of us. Once again, whether you have a million dollars or a hundred dollars, that's what your money is for, right? To use, to, to, to live a simple life and to be able to give to people who have nothing. Solomon also tells us, that with, when goods increase, they increase to eat them. What a statement. Not only do we get fatter the more money we have, right? But the, peop the people around us who want to consume what we have grows. Imagine if you win $100 million in the lottery this afternoon. How many new friends will you gain this week? Quite a few, right? They'll be coming out of the woodworks. Hey, remember that time that we like, had coffee together 17 years ago? Aren't we good pals now? Like, as the great ballad of the 90s said, right? More money, more problems. Like, that's what Solomon is telling us. Your life is not going to get better or easier necessarily. It's just going to bring about more complication. Unless you understand what your wealth is for, right? Unless you understand that it's there to give to people. Because when someone comes to ask you for money... If your first thought is, how do I protect my wallet? I know, I'm not giving this person. What kind of excuse can I make? And all of these things are running through your head. How do I protect the, what, this thing that I have gained and worked hard for? 
That's stressful. But if your understanding is, of course, I give you whatever I can afford to give you without question. I don't care what it's for. Here you go. That's a joyful, happy life, isn't it? When we understand what our money is for. And so that leads us to sort of the next point, right? Is that Solomon says, not only the person who loves money, but the person who hoards it. What does he say in verse 13? There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Once again, he qualifies it. It's not saying you can't have a bank account. You can't have a savings account, right? The rainy day fund. Solomon is not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the person who hoards it to their damage. You are so stingy and greedy with your savings account that if you have 50 grand sitting there and someone asks you for $500, like, oh, no, I can't afford that. What, you think I made up money? Give it away. Be generous. That's what Saul, because it's not just like, oh, that's because, because that is what God has commanded you. I better do what he says. But Solomon is telling us this is to your detriment to hoard and to gather money and to just keep it for yourself. As Christians, we know why, right? The world agrees with us that this is not good, but they don't really know why. As Christians, we understand God has told us to be generous to the poor, to the widow, and to the oppressed. And because God gave up everything in his son, Jesus, to save us. Everything we own belongs to the Lord. Every penny that we have. And when we are being called upon to give that away, it's not like this is mine and I earned it. This was a gift from God and he is asking me to then give it to somebody else. We're sort of the middleman, right? God gave it to us, we give it, we give it here. God gave it to us and we give it here. It's not ours to begin with. Paul in Galatians said this, you asked me to remember the poor. What does he say? The very thing that I am eager to do. James tells us if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's nothing, right? He finishes that verse by saying, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If we say we believe in God and our actions don't mirror our belief and our understanding of what God gave us, of the immense gift that he gave us in salvation, how could we ever be greedy or stingy with money when we know the gift that God has given us in Jesus? It's, it shouldn't be possible. And I think that's what James is telling us, right? That is, those two things do not compute. If you are greedy and stingy, you should probably check your salvation, right? Because that's what James is telling you. You don't understand the gift that God has given to you. If you love money and that is your God, you probably don't understand who Jesus really is. That's the warning that James gives to us over and over. Faith without works is dead. If all you ever do is speak about Jesus and you never do anything, re-examine your heart. So we don't hoard it away. We honor God when we give it away. When we are generous people. The last thing... He tells us in this very last section here. Behold, this is verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink 
and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given to him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. For this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You see, Solomon is not condemning the gaining of wealth or the gaining of power. He only condemns the people who gain it and don't know what to do with it, who are not using it properly. And so Solomon brings us back to this idea again and again and again. Because what did we talk about last week? How many times do we need to hear it? How many times do we need to hear the law of God? Right? We write it on our gate and on our doorpost. Because the ten steps it takes us to get from the gate to the house, we've already forgotten. We have to hear this. We have to break down the societal idea that all of this stuff that what society tells you is going to fulfill you and make you happy... And what's crazy is like we know it too. We don't even necessarily need to hear it from Solomon because we've all chased it at one point in our life. We've all acquired the thing that we thought was going to make us happy and it didn't. You see, all those jobs that I got and all these increases in salary, when I I was first told, I was like, man, this is going to be great. And a month later or maybe six months later, I'm like, oh, this this isn't all that great. I still need more. I need more money. I need that $100 a week. That wasn't enough. And then the $1,000 a month, that wasn't enough. And then the whatever, I mean, none of it was ever enough. No salary I've ever gotten, when I think about it under society standards, has ever been enough. I'm always like, ah, I need more. I need more. If I could just get this much more, then I can do this thing, and then that's going to make me happy. And then God gives it to me. And then I'm like, well, but yet now a little bit more and and this now new thing. We just keep adding on and we keep piling on. And we know from personal experience, it's not, it doesn't work. And so Solomon is telling us once again, life, a life serving God is simple and enjoyable. But we have to allow ourselves to do it, right? We have, to, we have to get rid of all that nonsense that we hear all of the time from everyone else around us. And what's hard is that we even hear it from our Christian brothers and sisters sometimes, right? We work and we find pleasure in that work. We come home and we find pleasure in our family and in eating a good meal. We give our excess to those who are in need. And we give all glory to God. This is what God is calling us to. See, serving God is the reason that we were created. And this life of living simply, it has to start somewhere. So if you're here this morning and you're hearing me and you're hearing, yeah, I I get you. I understand all of this stuff, but I I don't know how. I don't understand who God is. I don't know how to serve him. The first step is to reconcile your relationship with him, right? To bring healing. And it's not anything that you can do. It's not anything that I can do. And it's not any magic words that you have to say. But God has told us, you 
fall on our knees, right? We repent. We ask for forgiveness. We have to restore relationship with God before we can ever please him. Because what's happening here is that a lot of people might hear this message and be like, okay, that's how I get into God's good graces. I give away all my money, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and this is how I can serve God. We don't do these things or serve God to earn his love or his forgiveness. Because if that's where we were at, we'd be terrified that we weren't doing enough. I remember when we were doing some street evangelism up at Fort Lewis, we met this young guy. He's a Muslim guy. And he explained to us, you know, hey, this is, this is how we understand forgiveness from God. This is how we understand how we will get to heaven. One day God is going to weigh our good deeds and our bad deeds. And I looked at him and I said, how's that going for you, man? And he was like, oh, it's fine. You see, you see this is what God does. He, well, he's Allah, right? He says... He, Ten, you know, my good deeds are worth ten times what my bad deeds are. So one good deed is worth ten, and one bad deed is worth one. I said, yeah, but doesn't that make God unjust? And then he's like, I mean, he never thought of that. He never thought, wait a minute. Like, you're serving a God who is unjust so that you can make your understanding of doing good deeds to get to heaven work. And that's where the gospel is so much greater than any other world religion that exists. Because we're actually honest with ourselves. We recognize that we are failures and that nothing we have ever done is good enough to earn God's love or his forgiveness. But rather Christ came to earth, right? That's what the whole season of Christmas is about. Is that Jesus has come as our savior to fill in the spot where we can't. It's impossible for us to be good enough for God to love us or forgive us. And yet Christ has come and he says, I will give you my righteousness. I will give you my holiness. And then when God looks at us, he says, whoa. Like he sees Jesus. When the father looks down, he doesn't see you or I anymore. But he sees our savior, his son. And so when he says, I am well pleased with you. Don't let that go to your head, right? He's looking at Jesus, right? We're hiding behind the shadow of the cross. He is the thing that bridges the gap between us and the Father. And if we are going to try and pursue this life of fulfillment that Solomon is putting forth, we first and foremost have to put our trust in Christ. It has to come first. So if you want a fulfilling life on this earth, it starts with Christ and it grows from there. I'll close with an extreme statement from our Lord himself that we hear and we've heard and yet we have a hard time with. Jesus tells us, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink. Look at the sparrows. Look at the lilies of the field. They are taken care of and how much more does God love you than them? How hard is that for us? To really let that sink in. That we are just not even, we're not going to worry about anything in our life, right? That's the call of our Lord Jesus. That is the call of the book of Ecclesiastes. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is stop worrying about all of these things. Live your life and find joy in it and serve God and worship him. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are, we are such weak 
fragile creatures. Lord, oftentimes we are exactly like Lot's wife. We are looking back. We are trying to see what maybe we've left behind. Lord, we are trying to control our situation. We are worried about all of the things that are going on around us and how are we going to make these things fit together. Lord, we complicate our lives and we stress ourselves out. And Lord, we forget the wisdom of your revealed word to us. Lord, that you are in control and not us. So Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, that you would give us a ten times measure of what we have right now so that we can hear the words of Jesus and actually not just agree with them but live them out, that we would not even worry about what we are going to eat or drink because our faith in you is so deep and so strong that you are going to take care of us. So Lord, we ask that you would melt away all of the cares of our life, Lord, that you would melt away this lie that money and power and respect and these things, that these are going to be the thing that make our life complete when we know they won't. Lord, we ask you to give us a deeper and stronger and more real faith in Jesus, that we would rest in him, that we would rely on him, he would be the only thing we seek in this life. And so that every blessing you give to us, whether it be a little or a lot, Lord, that we're just ready and willing to give that away whenever and however you call us to do it. We love you. We thank you for these truths. Lord, let them penetrate into our hearts, into our minds deeply. Change the way that we think and act. Because this is your truth. And it's good. It's meant to be applied to each one of us on an individual level. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would do that through the Holy Spirit in each one of our lives this week, Lord, that you would apply these things at a deep level. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.